four kinds of men. Be asking yourself the question, what none of us fits real cleanly into any one category, I'm sure, but what do these categories do to help help us understand where we are? Are we comfortable men who are saying, everything's fine, don't bug me? If that's where you are as we're meeting this afternoon, if that's your lifestyle, that you're comfortable men, then I must tell you that you have very little power and very little passion. If you're a comfortable man, you're not impacting anybody very deeply. Your life is not very important the way you're living it. And I invite you to look hard at the quality of your relationships as I must look at mine. And those six questions we talked about earlier today, maybe they might be a good place to start. If you're a troubled man, if you're saying, I know something's wrong, but I'm getting on okay, I think, but I'm open to your thoughts. If that's where you are, then I invite you to face those spheres of life where things are terribly wrong and where you can't jump back up into the everyday sphere and make it all better. There's some things that are very, very wrong and you have no idea what to do about it. You just don't know what to do, how to handle the situation Monday morning that you have to face. you got a phone call coming in next Wednesday afternoon you have no slightest idea what to do. Face that. I invite you to do that if you're a troubled man. If you're a dysfunctional man, if you're saying everything's a mess, my life is totally fouled up, I need help, then I invite you to face your rage at God and your rage at others for the unfair treatment you've suffered and reflect on how badly you long for a father and brother, but how you've given so little of either of those elements to anybody else. Face how badly you need connection. If you're an unhealthily connected man, if you're saying, I'm not in denial and I'm doing fine, then I would ask you this. Is there a deep passion? Now listen to this phrase. Is there a deep passion for someone more than yourself? Is there a gratitude that's stronger than self-confidence? A willingness to give despite the personal suffering that it costs? If you're a healthily connected person, there may be a few in our midst today, and you're saying things like this, I'm struggling hard, and I face every day paralyzing moments where I don't know what to do, but I know that there's a substance within me that when I mold it within my own hands and give it away, that there's something of value that I can give away. My greatest joy is being who I am on behalf of others. I'm struggling, but I know where I'm headed. If that's your position, then you get up and take the mic and teach the rest of the afternoon. And I invite you to lead me into a deeper passion for God. The effects of all this, we're troubled, we're comfortable, we're dysfunctional, unhealthily connected, our lives are not what they should be. What's caused the problem? Topic three. What's caused the problem? We lack courage, we live by code, we suffer from no one believing in us or listening to us, we tend to stay away from hard times and stay comfortable, or we admit some things are hard but get on with life as a troubled person, or we face what a mess things are and become dysfunctional, or we connect ourselves to something wrong and think we're doing fine when we're not. It's kind of an upbeat thought, isn't it? And as a result, our wives feel little passion from us, our sons feel pressured, our daughters feel dangerous, our friends feel distant. 
and our fathers feel dismissed or hated. What's behind all this? If you're with me so far in the day and you're following some of it and agreeing with a little, little of it here and there, then, then I think the, the question that would naturally be in any of our minds is how, how things get so bad? And is there a way out? Is this day going to end on an up note or a not an up note? Well, I hope it's going to be an up note. I think it's great hope. But there's a principle that I think runs through every experience in life, and that is that we never know the fullness of the hope until we know the depths of the problem. And therefore, rather than just a pep talk on let's go out and be men and do all that we're supposed to be doing with our lives, maybe we need to face that there's something that's gotten very twisted down deep in our beings that just isn't good at all. Robert Bly, when he tries to understand the problem, he takes the position that it's fair to look at literature and to believe that if there are enduring themes that run through literature for the ages, that those enduring themes may have value. And he has, as a poet and as a literary scholar, he has gone through a lot of the old-time literature looking for themes, and he stumbled upon one particular fairy tale by the Brothers Grimm called Iron John. And he's looked at that myth, that fairy tale, written a long time ago, and extracted themes from that, and presented us with themes that come out of that that maybe can help us understand what's going on and what's happening in our souls. And I think that's a fair procedure to do. That's true all the way through. And that whatever it teaches, we can trust. And whatever themes it suggests, we don't have to be critical of, we can accept and seek to understand as opposed to evaluate and see whether we like it or not. Or whether it's true. And that, of course, is the Bible. And if you have your Bibles, many of you don't, of course, but if you do, turn to Genesis. And I want to look at a, I want to look at a thought here that might help us get at what I think the central problem is in people's lives, in men's lives. The first man got us in trouble. How did he do it? We're all his heirs in a very meaningful and difficult sense. There's an inherited tendency that just plain comes naturally to men. An inherited tendency that Adam began a long time ago and has been passed on to you and me and that every man that's been born has this tendency which Adam got started. Let me tell you how I think it works. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Genesis 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him... Eve wasn't around yet. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Notice the focus of that phrase. You are free to eat from any tree. In other words, it's my liberality which is the point. Any tree in the garden, it's all yours. Have a blast. I made it for you. Have a good time. I'm into pleasure. Be happy. That's God talking to Adam. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but because I'm God and you're not, I know what's best for you. And I'm giving you an instruction that you must keep to keep the relationship between us straight. I'm the creator, you're the creature. And here's the prohibition. You must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. 
It was after he gave that instruction that he, that he created Eve. Did you ever think about that? Why did God not wait until Eve was created to give the instruction to both man and woman? Why did he give it just to man? That's what he did. He didn't give it to the woman directly. He gave it to the man, for whatever reason. Chapter 3, a problem developed. Eve is now created. Adam, no doubt, had communicated to her after they got acquainted. That must have been quite a time. He had never never seen a woman before. All he had seen were a bunch of animals that he had named, and then all of a sudden, God says, take a nap, wake up, look over there. And my guess is they got along fantastically. Everything was great. You all have moments in your life that last for ten minutes? <laughs> Twenty minutes? When everything's great? Everything's super. Paradise. Everything's fine at home. The bills are paid and your desk is clear and your car is washed and it's working and... You know, your wife's kind of happy, and she thinks you're neat, and you just lost 10 pounds, you're working out regularly, you got plenty of energy, the boss gave you a raise, everything's super. And you figure, well, i got to make. Now, what do you hate the most when everything's going super? Something to mess it up. Everything's going super, and up comes a snake. Who did the snake go to? Now, the serpent, chapter 3, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And so he said to the, to the woman, God said to the man, here's the prohibition, here's the opportunity. The serpent says to the woman, he didn't go to Adam, he goes to the woman and begins with this, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman then replied to the serpent and said, we may eat fruit from the tree. She didn't say from any of the trees. She missed the point of God's liberality. We must eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. God hadn't said that. Eve was beginning to see God as more limiting than in fact he was. Or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Here's a question I want to ask you. Was Adam there when the serpent tempted Eve? Some say no, some say yes. What does it mean when he says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it? My associate Dan called up an Old Testament scholar, a friend of his, a very high-level Old Testament scholar. He teaches at a theological seminary in Old Testament studies, and he called him up last week, and he said, um, was Adam there when the serpent tempted Eve? And the guy said, nah. Dan said, how do you know? He responded by saying, well, it just doesn't make sense. He wasn't there. And Dan said, well, you're a scholar. Could you do better than that? Um, could you get your Bible? You mean my Hebrew Bible? Well, yeah, you're a Hebrew scholar. Get your Hebrew Bible and look at it. Now? Yeah, now. 
So he got his Hebrew Bible and Dan's on the phone talking to this friend of his and he's listening on the phone as this scholar is muttering in Hebrew looking at the text, you know, and all this. And after about five minutes of Dan listening to this Hebrew scholar mutter, the scholar burst out and said, the son of a gun was there. The argument of those who say he was there, and there's some who would say he wasn't, but the argument of those who would say he was there includes a variety of things, but one of the things that's involved in this argument is that the entire narrative, Genesis 3, 1 through 7, uh, is constructed in the Hebrew in a way, and this is out of my depth, so I'll say it quickly since I have no idea what I'm talking about. It was constructed in a way that the, that the author intended the reader to take this as one unit. A package unit. Regardless of how long the actual sequence took, perhaps the serpent tempted Eve and a couple days later she thought about it and said, maybe I'll go back to that tree and have some. And then she took a bite and then went over and found Adam a couple hours later. I mean, all that's possible, but the way the unit is described here is a way of saying, don't take it that way. My question is this. If Adam was there, why didn't he talk? If Adam was there, and I believe he was, why didn't he talk? Why do I not talk? Why are there situations into which I will not speak? Why, when my wife presents me with paralyzing situations, do I not speak with courage into the chaos? Is there an inherited tendency from Adam that every man in this room and every man born since Adam except our Lord inherited? If Adam was there, why didn't he say anything? Has the silence of Adam been passed on to us and now we're silent too? Unlike God in whose image we've been created, I love the title of Francis Schaeffer's book, he is there and he is not silent. He's spoken into the mess that we've created. And I don't speak into the mess unless I have a code where I'm pretty guaranteed I can pull it off. What makes it worse is that the New Testament teaches that Eve was deceived. Paul says this in 1 Timothy. That Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't deceived. It gets worse, folks. Adam got things off on a bad start. I would suggest that Adam's silence was the beginning of the fall. The fall was the eating of the fruit. But every sin begins with something that culminates, lust when it conceives, brings forth sin, the Bible says. Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was. And when the Bible says that Eve was deceived, it's really a moral word, and the idea of the word is this, that when you're deceived the way Eve was, it means you come to a fork in the road, you can go this way or you can go this way. You aren't deceived about which way you're supposed to go. You're deceived about the consequences of, the, of what's going to happen if you go the wrong way. Here's a way that I'm probably not supposed to go. I don't know. But, well, no, I shouldn't go this way. This is the right way, but, you know, this way is going to result in, that's going to work pretty well, isn't it? There's a way that seems right. The end of the ways of, I think it'll work out fine, thanks. Eve was deceived. And you see, what I think actually happened, I take the Genesis narrative as literal as opposed to myth in the sense of fiction. 
and, and I, if it actually happened this way, then, then picture what actually took place. It take, it's, it's what happens in my home all the time. Things are going along pretty well. And then something comes up. Now, I don't know what to do. So I put on the TV. Things are going along pretty well for Adam and Eve, and the serpent comes up, and the serpent's talking to Eve and says, this is what God said, and Eve says, well, let me think of how I got this right now. My husband told me this a little while ago. Here's how I remember it. And uh, she's getting deceived now. She's in the middle of a moral deceptive process where she's starting to believe that bad leads to good, and she's going in this direction, and Adam didn't say a word. What should he have done? Seems to me he ought to have spoken up. He ought to have said, uh, hang on a minute here. Um, no, no, honey, that's not what I said. No, no. No, well, this, this, this snake here is not telling you the truth. He's leading you in wrong directions. I don't want you to move in this direction. It's not what our Father has told us. It's not what the God who walks with us in the cool of the day has told us. Honey, this is not to be. When's the last time you talked to your wife like that? How'd it go? chauvinist pig he knew God's word he had heard it correctly he understood it but he didn't speak and then even worse after having not spoken and Eve took of the fruit and came to Adam and said here take a bite God later when he judged Adam said because you listened to the voice of your wife. I'm going to punish you. And my question again is why? Why was Adam silent? The major question. And the answer to it, I think, will give us some clues as to why we tend to be silent and maybe give us some clues as to what has to happen for us to overcome our culpable, unmasculine, self-centered and sinful silence. Some time ago, I was having dinner. My wife and I were having dinner with two friends of ours. He happens to be a, a Bible scholar as well. And it was Rachel and me and these two folks. Let's call them Joe and Sally. And we're having a nice time. Everything was going well. Just a nice little dinner party. Two couples, good friends, enjoy each other, a good meal at their home. Um, she had cooked up a great meal. We're having a good time. Just easy, relaxing evening. Everything's fine. It's a little bit like paradise. Everything's okay. The phone rings. Sally answers the phone, talks for about ten minutes, and comes back to the table visibly distressed. Comes back to the table and says, Oh, oh. Well, what do you do at that point? Husband didn't do a thing. He just had another bite of food. I think my wife said, What's wrong? And Sally said, oh, that was my sister. And, oh, things in my family are just falling apart worse than ever. I, and she told us a very sad story about some current crisis in their family. And as she's talking, I'm kind of watching out of the, close to my, the side of my eye. I'm watching Joe over here. And she's talking, looking more at me and Rachel, not at Joe. And I'm thinking, why aren't you looking to him? And he's sitting up there eating and smiling, literally. He's just, you know, and I'm going, and she looked at me and she said, what do you think I ought to do? I said, talk to your husband. <laughs> and 
And she said, literally, she said, um, I, I, that's not what I tend to do at these times. And I said, what's it like for you, as you talk about these things, to have him eat and smile? It changed the complexion of the evening a little bit. <laughs> And she said, that's what he always does. This is a good friend of mine, and don't hear this is something which ought to be done routinely, but he's a good friend, and I have a lot of respect for him. So I turned to him and I said, for the last ten minutes, you have miserably failed your wife. You have participated in the sin of Adam. You've been silent when you should be speaking. His next words were, what am I to do? No code, no speech. But because this is a godly man, a good man, he didn't sleep that night. We talked a couple days later and he said, that's how I always treat her. I refuse to speak where I'm not sure of myself. And I said, well, you got it from your great-great-grandfather Adam. That's no excuse, but that's what happened. You see, when the serpent came, the thing to realize is this. God had given Adam... No forewarning about what was going to take place. Look for it in the text. It's not there. God did not say when he created Adam and then told about the, the rules, no eating of this particular tree. Eat the rest of them, have a good time, but don't eat that one. Now take a nap. Here's your wife. Let me get the two of you guys together now. Let me tell you something's going to happen here. A couple days from now, a couple years, who knows how long, going to be a snake come up and start talking to you people. He's going to talk to the woman. And Adam, here's how a man is supposed to handle it. He didn't say that to him. There's no manual on how to handle the important things in life. Adam was left on his own. God never warned Adam what was coming, and he never told Adam what to do when it happened. Adam was left on his own. To remain within clear moral boundaries, God had made certain things clear. There are certain things you are not to do. There were certain clear moral boundaries. God had left Adam on his own to remain within clear moral boundaries, to believe God, certainly, but to figure out a way to respond to a situation that he didn't expect. That caught him off guard, caught him by surprise, that disrupted his pleasant experience, that he had received no specific instructions on how to handle. God, why didn't you say more? I think the answer is because that's how God made us to enjoy our manhood. To create. As God creates, we create. He out of nothing, we out of something. We're not God, we're dependent, but we're like God. He creates, we're to create in His image and to move into our worlds when we don't have a clue what we're doing. He knew what He was doing. We have a harder time. But we have a God who's going to work with us, a God who gives us moral boundaries. And then He says, gentlemen, you go out and live like men. Here's your opportunity, Adam. To express the deepest part of your masculinity. An opportunity you couldn't have if the serpent wouldn't come. I permit everything ultimately for a good purpose. Here's your opportunity to express the deepest part of your masculinity. To take hold of a situation that you don't know how to handle. In obedience to me. And that of love for your wife. And Adam kept silent. When do we keep silent? And there's no code. What do we do rather than speak? We find some way to keep the peace. And what are the consequences? Relationships are hurt. Husband-wife tensions develop. 
and we wimp out by blaming everybody but ourselves. So the woman you gave me got me in trouble here. Adam failed most centrally as a man. You and I fail most centrally in our masculinity. And as a result, we pass on a defective life to our sons who fail to speak as well and end up empty in their masculinity. And the cycle continues. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's the way it is. God didn't give Adam a code. Didn't tell him what to do. He gave him parameters within which to operate. But he required Adam to have the courage to create in chaos. And Adam fell. What Adam should have done, what speaking would mean in that context, I would suggest, might be something like this. What Adam should have done is to speak as the serpent was tempting his wife, to wrangle with his wife and to say, no, this is not to be, to risk her displeasure as he intrudes himself into her life knowing that he's got a point to make. Having the courage to move in risking displeasure. See, we don't do that. And then if she ate anyhow, what do you do when you speak and nothing happens right anyhow? When Eve brought the fruit to Adam, it seems to me what he should have done was something like this. Speaking at that point would have meant to refuse to eat. Honey, I will not do this. And then to come before God with the mess created by Eve's eating, pleading for a solution beyond his understanding. God, I don't know what to do here. My wife and I have lost everything we had because she yielded to the serpent. I've chosen to be obedient. Our relationship is over. God, I miss her. God, you designed me for pleasure to be with her. Is it all over now, God? I'll trust in your character as a good God and come before you as a child to his father saying, toss me in the air again, Daddy. I don't know how you're going to do it. And that's what we're supposed to do as men. Move into our worlds without a code. Living courageously within moral limits, being involved with a daughter who dresses provocatively. Speaking to her. And risking her saying, Oh, Dad! What do you mean my skirt's too tight? Oh, Dad, that's just ridiculous. And inside we do, Jeez! Why can't I have a kid who says, thanks so much, Dad, for your guidance. <laughs> How do you speak into a situation when your son is smoking pot? Find me a book that will tell you what to do on that. And if the book tells you exactly what to do, burn it. How do you speak to a wife who's furious, a friend who snubs you, a mother who possesses you, a father who fails you, an employee who's an employer who's unfair, an employee who's lazy. Stay involved. Speak. What do we say? I don't know. Create. Well, that's not very satisfying. No, not to fallen men who demand a code. But it's an opportunity for men who want to create and are willing to take an awful, awful, awful risk. And very few of us do that. Very few men do it. It doesn't come naturally for us to do that. 
because our very natures are terrified to move without clear direction. That's the legacy, the inheritance we've gotten from Adam. We forfeited the birthright of manhood and traded it in for a mess of pottage, for whatever makes us feel good for the moment because we have an inherited tendency to do so, passed on by Adam. That's at the root of our problem. That's just there. Just as a father and mother who have a disease pass it on to a child, so this disease has been passed on into my soul, and that's how I naturally operate. I will not speak when courage is required. I will speak when a code is in place. And I'm pretty sure of not failing and pretty sure of reward if I do such and such. Now that's a disease that is in me. The time, the sperm met the egg that is now me. That disease was passed on. That's part of me. But you know what's happened? The second part to our problem. The second part to our problem is that um, my experiences in life from infancy and through boyhood on to adulthood, my experiences in life have reinforced that idea. Have reinforced the idea that maybe maybe my manhood is not up to the job of speaking. I don't want to be required to speak and maybe I've learned some lessons that support that retreat. And I want to talk for the next few minutes up until we break about assaults on manhood. Ways in which you and I have been assaulted. And everybody has been. Things that have happened in our lives that have convinced us that our natural tendency is reasonable. Things that have happened in our lives that have convinced us that the ways we naturally operate, given that we're all sons of Adam, are are reasonable ways to operate. What has taken place in your life that has basically been a strong message to you saying, create out of chaos with courage? Forget it. I tried it once or twice. And frankly, all it did was get in trouble. And if you're saying that that's the route to life, it isn't the route to life, and I've got 20 experiences to back it up. I tried it, and it wasn't life, it was death. I felt terrible. I think of the guy that told me in counseling some time ago of the time that he and his dad, he was a 12-year-old boy, and they were building a workspace in the garage. And um, the father realized he didn't have certain equipment, so he said, look, I'm going to go to the hardware store and pick up some things and come back, be back in about 45 minutes or so. And uh, while the father was gone, the 12-year-old boy thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to really please Dad. I'm going to take hold of something. I'm going to create. I'm not sure how to do this, but I'm going to go for it. I'm going to hang the pegboard where it's supposed to be behind the workbench. All it means is you've got to put a couple of these big nails Dad was going to use to put the pegboard in. So I'm going to do that. So while Dad was gone, little 12-year-old boy very proudly found the, the nails and the hammer and kind of put it up and kind of held it up against it and got a nail in to hold it in place and then was able to put it in firmly. And he was so excited as he pounded those big nails in and he got that pegboard in so it couldn't be taken off by any natural force. <laughs> and then he just sat back and, you know, I took the clay, molded it, and gave it. Look at that. Boy, Dad's going to be so excited. Dad came home and came into the garage. You know, good mood, happy day, just working with the son in the garage, getting things done. And he saw the pegboard up, and he realized that the boy had forgotten to cut holes for the electrical outlets to plug in the tools. And for whatever reason, he'd lost his temper. And he said, oh, geez, you forgot to cut out the outlets. I mean, now we're going to have to pull the whole thing off and it'll probably tear up the... Oh, for goodness. Well, let's get to it. How's 12-year-old boy feel? Don't you take any risks again. 
You won't do it, but could you all stand up and tell your story? Do you all have a story to tell? When you hung a pegboard? When you did something that felt good? Natural, maybe? Aggressive? And it just didn't work out. What have been the assaults in your manhood? One thought that our men's group came up with, I think it's worth thinking about. There may be one symbolic event that didn't do all the damage, but symbolizes all the damage that's been done. Maybe for that gentleman, it's the pegboard experience. As I tell a few more illustrations to make my point, see if, see if your minds can go to the time when it's happened to you. A friend of mine who struggles with homosexual impulses, he's happily married, has several children, he functions very well heterosexually, but he struggles with homosexual impulses and has for years. He told me the story as we were dealing with some of his struggles. He told me the story of how when he was five or six years old, this little boy had a younger sister, and the two of them were just playing together. That was his playmate. During the day, he'd have other boyfriends, and he'd be out jungle gym and throwing baseballs and all the good manly things that dad wants to watch their boys do. But in the evening, he just had a sister there, so his three-year-old sister and he were sitting in the living room, and they were playing. They just happened to be playing with her dolls. Not because he was terribly attracted to dolls versus erector sets or baseballs or footballs, but it's something to do and, you know, it's something to pass time with with your little sister. So he was sitting there playing, just being natural, having a good time. You know, thinking nothing of it, nothing unmasculine, just being a little boy, playing with his sister. His dad walked in the living room. He came home from work, and he walked in, and he told me this. And when he told me, this is a 37-year-old man, he told me, he trembled as he told the story. He said, Dad walked in, and he looked down, and he saw me and my sister playing with dolls. And he didn't even look at my sister. He looked at me with a level of sneering disdain that's burned in my memory. I can't get it out of my mind. He literally began to shake him as he talked about him. And what Dad said, as he looked at me with this contemptuous, horrible, rejecting, sneering look, he said these words, boys don't play with dolls, and walked out of the room. What do you, what do you learn from that? What do you learn from hanging a pegboard and forgetting to put the holes in? My friend learned something along these lines. I wouldn't die by these words, but something in this category. My friend learned... I must not be a real boy, because real boys don't do this. I must never speak as a boy, because in some way I'm not one. Homosexual urges developed a few years later. In his young adulthood, he married a woman, hoping that would take care of the homosexual urge. It didn't, never does. He almost got a divorce. Until one day, they were sitting in my office, this couple... They had been separated now for several months. He was had, had nothing but homosexual desires, no desire for his wife physically. We were sitting in the office and he was telling me all these stories about his father sneering at him, about his lack of desire for his wife. And his wife, as, she, as he was telling the story, was sitting, I can still picture the office where I was sitting, he was here and she was here, about six, seven feet apart, the two chairs that I had, and I was over here in my chair. And as he was telling me the story, I kind of watched her a bit. And he was saying how I, I just have no feelings for my wife at all and I just don't have any desires for her and, and I wish I did, but I don't. And I began to think, what is this poor woman going through? I looked over at her and I've just never seen a more pathetic side of my life. She was, she's a, a little thing and just was sitting there just like this, a pretty, very attractive young woman, but just sitting there just pathetic and just, just, just like that. And I remember what I did. 
I turned to him and I said, look at your wife. Never occurred to him to do that before. He looked at his wife. I said, what do you see? He said, she's not doing well. And I said, there's only one man in the history of time who can do for her what needs to be done. It's not me. You're the man. You get up out of your chair and you go over and you grab that lady. And he just... And he got up. And he walked over to her. And I'll tell you, it was the longest walk that man ever took. And he lifted her up out of her chair and he grabbed her. The two of them literally fell on the couch together and I left the room. <laughs> Didn't know when to come back in. You kind of peek, you know. <laughs> that was about 12 years ago. I speak with that man fairly regularly. His marriage is good. He still struggles occasionally with homosexual urges. He's fathered a few children. I was with him a while ago when I was speaking to a large group. I'm used to public speaking, but sometimes it's hard. And I was speaking to a room, large, huge room with 6,000 people in it. There were several speakers that spoke to the whole audience, and I was one of them. That morning, I was sitting out in the audience of 6,000 people listening to the morning speaker. I was the afternoon speaker. In a room that size, they had a big screen. It was three times the size, ten times the size of that screen. And it would project the face of the speaker on the screen. And I'm sitting out in the audience of 6,000 people watching a friend of mine up there preaching, looking at his huge face. You can see every pimple, every line, any saliva on the side of his mouth. You could see it, and, you know. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be up there this afternoon. Felt like asking for makeup from my wife. So I got up there and it occurred to me as I walked to the pulpit to speak, the podium to speak that afternoon, it occurred to me, there's only one person in the whole room that can't watch me on the screen. That's me. Because if I turn around and see the back of my head, see, camera's out there. I can never see myself. You know, back of the head. <laughs> and for a variety of reasons, that unnerved me and some other things unnerved me and I didn't do a good job. A lot of you are public speakers, pastors, other folks. And you know what it's like to really bomb? I bombed from my position at all. Some folks told me they were helped. I didn't feel that I did a good job at all. I felt like I did a terrible job. Got off from that pulpit and went outside. I wanted to hide somewhere. And this friend, who 10, 15 years ago had gotten out of his chair and walked over to his wife, he had come to believe something about himself. He had come to believe there was clay within the depths of his soul, masculine clay that could be molded and given with impact that had happened with his wife. And he said to me, how do you feel about what happened? It wasn't too hard to tell that I was feeling kind of discouraged. What would you do if you were a friend of mine and you saw me just really discouraged? What would be your temptation? Probably to say nothing or, hey, that's pretty good. Or, well, as always next time. He entered me. He said, how did you feel about that? And I said, I didn't feel very good. He said, can I buy a breakfast tomorrow morning? I said, well, sure. Went the next morning for breakfast for three hours. He began the conversation by saying, how come you got behind that podium with 6,000 people in the room expecting everybody to hate you? 
That really irritated me. I trained this guy in counseling, and I was using it against me. And I remember my internal response was, pal, you want to take me on? You got yourself one fight. I know how to do this stuff. So I took out the sword of my tongue, and we went like that. I tried to defeat him, and he wouldn't let me defeat him. Here was a man who gave me something that day. That meant a lot. Here was a man who overcame something of the assault on his manhood. Why? Because he made a choice to create in chaos and to move toward a woman when he didn't have a clue what to do. All he knew was he jolly well better move. Because, why? He got his eyes off his wound and onto his wife's need. Where are your eyes? One more illustration. The assaults of manhood that take that tendency we inherited from Adam to not speak without a code and convince us that it's very reasonable. What's your symbol event? Let me give you a symbol event for me. It may not be the biggest one, but it's one that comes to mind as I ponder this. Frankly, it's embarrassing to tell. But let me tell it. When I was about eight years old, my parents and I were visiting with um, family friends, good friends of mother and dad. Bob and Alice McCoy were the name, the names. I was about seven, eight, maybe. And they had a they had a daughter named Nancy who was my age. I thought she was cute. I was kind of precocious. And while the family was together, we had dinner together, and then mom and dad and their friends were chatting somewhere in the living room, and and Nancy and I, we were the playmates for the evening. Nancy and I went up to her bedroom to play games, to read comics, to do something. And I decided that I wanted to kiss Nancy. So I kind of moved, made my move. And I went over and kind of, you know, whatever you do that's eight that feels macho, you know, something. <laughs> spit in the floor or something to let her know you're really a man. And I went over and I was going to kiss her. And she discerned my intentions. And she screamed. Her dad heard the scream, came to the bottom of the stairs, called up, what are you guys doing up there? Know what I did? I grabbed for a comic book picked it up, opened it, and said, we're just reading comics. And I heard him and his wife laugh. Notice three things in that story. Notice, first of all, that I assertively moved toward a girl with natural urges, wrongly. I'm not saying that was a good thing for me to have done. But I moved toward her, insensitively, wrongly, unkindly, inappropriately, but I moved. Something inside of me went, yeah. Notice that, first of all. Notice, secondly, that when confronted, I didn't say a word until I had grabbed a comic book. Notice that? Isn't that curious? I think that's because I wanted to be able to truthfully say 
we're just reading comics. Been raised in a very strong Christian home. I was conscious of returning to a code very quickly and living by it. Don't lie. But you're in trouble. You get right back to doing what's right. And do it this minute. Live by code. Don't you do it. Anything is wrong. Tell the truth. That's supposed to work. The third thing in the story is I heard them laugh. And I can recall internally feeling a level of shame that gripped my soul. When it was time to go that evening, I don't want to come down the stairs. Just didn't want to do it. What did I learn from that? Call that an experience that assaulted my manhood. Call that an experience that taught me something that comes naturally to me anyhow as Adam's son. And put my inherited tendency as a member of the human race who's male, along with these assaults on my manhood, and you end up with a problem. And the problem, I think, is something like this. Don't release who you are, you'll get in trouble. And even when you recover from an error, by living by the code, you're still going to get no respect. You know one of my big struggles is I keep waiting to be found out. Anybody feel like that? Keep waiting to be found out. I've often thought it'd be nice to um, write a book someday and have the book called What I Really Want to Say and tell the publisher, publish it after I die. You ever feel like that? What do you really want to say? Well, for goodness sakes, don't do it. What do you really want to be? I mean good things now. I don't mean grabbing little girls and kissing them. I mean moving into your worlds on behalf of God, moving into people's lives because you care, talking to your son, talking to your daughter, talking to your wife, talking to your world. Moving into your world saying, I'm not sure what to do, but within moral limits, here's who I am and I'm going to come. That's a sexual phrase, isn't it? I'm going to come. I've prayed the last six months. I think my single biggest prayer in terms of me has been, Lord, I want release. I want to come. Living in the fear of doing it right. Am I living by the code? Am I handling things the way I want to handle them? A friend of mine three weeks ago, four weeks ago, pastor, had a father who abandoned the family when the little boy was about five. The little boy grew up, became quite an athlete, was a major football star at a major university. His dad got back involved in his life. Called him up in his senior year of college. He'd been, a, he'd been turning into a pretty good player. His senior year, he became an outstanding player. He was on national TV. And his dad watched his son on national TV and gave him a call. Hadn't talked to his son in years and said, I'd like to, um, your birthday is coming up, 21st birthday, next Friday night, how about if we have dinner next Friday night together? Hadn't seen his dad for years. The 20-year-old boy's young man's heart was just thumping with excitement. Wednesday night, he was in his college dorm, the chaplain knocked on the door and said to him, I have difficult news for you, your father has just been shot in a poker game, he's dead. What's the message to that gentleman? Don't hope. Don't ever hope. Work hard, but don't expect much. 
And when bad things come, realize that's the way it is. Life never works. When there are problems in this man's family, his response is it'll all probably fall apart. I'll do my best, but I know it's not going to work out well. I have no zeal, no joy, no hope. I'm frantic. I work hard, but I'm just putting off the inevitable. Whenever anything looks good, it's going to be taken from me. I know that. So I'll just do whatever I should. I'll play by the book. And he's a pastor by the book up until a little while ago. He's learning to be a pastor a little bit by the Spirit. And it's very different. What's our problem? Well, something's wrong. We live by code, not courage. What's missing? Fatherhood. Nobody believes in us. Brotherhood. Nobody's listening. What are the effects? We lose courage and look for something that we can make work. We look for somebody who cares. Depending how well it all goes, we live as comfortable men who are passionless, troubled men who are apprehensive, dysfunctional men who are stubborn, and unhealthily connected men who are self-focused and can't see beyond our own souls. How'd the problem start? With Adam's silence when there was no code. And our silence has been shaped by symbol events that have assaulted our manhood. The last question for the day, what do we do about it? We'll look at it after we break. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.